They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. I'm Thara. And I'm Shreya. Well, hello listeners. It's been a while, but we are so happy to be back with you. For those of you who've been keeping up with our announcements, be at ease. Producer Nicole is on track to recover from her health problems, and our team has returned to produce the rest of our third season. Even in this time of real-world terrors, we hope you can enjoy the bewitching lore of queer horror. We look forward to having you once again ensnared in our clutches. How many of us have grappled with a monster under the bed, struggling to overcome it and striving to escape its grasp? Our first piece plunges into such a battle, but don't discount our heroine just yet. Disturbance was written by J. Danielle Dorn and performed by Lucille Valentine. Please be warned that this piece depicts vomiting, gore, and assault with sexual connotations. For the last few weeks, whenever Rebecca drifted off to sleep, a greasy hand would rise up out of the darkness and seize her by the throat. Every night before this one, she had lain still until it was finished. Until the hand had slipped its fingers into her mouth and plucked from her what it wanted. She figured she could do little else. It was not as if it were going to kill her. If it had intended to kill her, it would have gone ahead and done it already. Instead, it came back and it kept on touching her. The touching ended, of course, but it also came back, and that was the part that was getting to her. Sometimes the fingers slid down the back of her throat, all the way down into her stomach where they slid around, taking their time reading the folds and the curves with its fingertips seeking some crevice they could latch onto, so when she awakened, sweat slick and sick with remembering, she had to peel herself from between sheets gone clammy with sweat and tears, dash to the bathroom and throw herself down on bruised knees to empty the memory into the basin. Only tears would drive them out. The stomach was the most disruptive way to extract them. She awakened sooner, harder, colder. Those nights she could not coax herself back to sleep after she had purged the phantom tendrils from her belly. Not when the lock screen on her phone pronounced the time to be between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. A smiling couple behind the numbers holding each other, sunlight blessing them. Most of the time, though, the fingers slid up the back of her throat, snaking into her sinuses and poking the thin plate of bone between her brain and her soft palate. 
tickling some dusty memory or another, looking for the one to make salt water slip down her nose, pool at the back of her throat, to make her wake up with a cough and a shout. Those nights, she could awaken her phone screen and dry her eyes and roll back over. If it happened again a second time, she would abandon the effort and the bed. Both. Nothing the doctors prescribed for her worked. Not benzos, not barbiturates, not tricyclic antidepressants, neither did booze, neither did pot, neither did masturbating. Try this, they kept saying. We'll see you back here in six weeks. Don't worry, that doesn't work sometimes. We'll try something else. You're doing great. We're making progress. No, she knew. We weren't. Tonight, she let herself drift off, and she waited for the hand to rise up from beneath the bed and slip between her teeth. Tonight, she opened her eyes and chomped down on the fingers. From beneath the bed came a low and gargling roar. When the hand yanked away, Rebecca bit down harder, growling herself with the effort. Over the side of the bed they both went, hitting the ground with a slam that rattled the furniture that the neighbors downstairs had to have heard. They heard a lot of things they kept to themselves. She kept her eyes wide open as she bit, expecting blood to fill her mouth or bone to crack between her jaws, expecting to find the culprit beneath the bed. She grabbed for the wrist belonging to her tormentor, found it inches from her mouth and gripped it hard. She got her legs beneath her and dragged the thing out from its hiding place. Her fingers were not sharp enough to do the job, so she had to use her hunting knife. The blade found its stomach and she pushed it up and in. The blade found its jaw and she leaned all of her weight into it listening for the crack of cartilage before she grimaced and twisted the handle, pulled it back out and drove it into the monster's eye. It did not weep. It shrieked. She was out of breath by the time it stopped moving. Her own stomach was sour, and her own eyes leaked. She sobbed. The stench was unlike anything she could have either expected or imagined. She took back the knife and climbed off the monster. When she reached for the phone, it was not to consult the time. An operator answered the call, and she said in as firm a voice as she could muster, I killed the son of a bitch. This idyllic farmhouse has all the tension of a trap about to spring, and the protagonist of our next piece has no idea what he stumbled into. But who is really pulling the strings behind the scenes? 
The Farmer's Son was written by Troy H. Gardner and features Ari Ryder as the voice of Charlie, Eric Little as Henry, V as Judy, and Wart Hill as Josiah. My head pounded when I awoke. I wasn't sure where I was, besides lying on a lumpy mattress in some dark room. Wincing, I sat up and felt a bandage around my forehead. What the hell happened to me? I tossed the coarse blanket off my body and pivoted, dropping my feet to the hardwood floor. I was still dressed in my polo shirt and blue jeans, but my shoes were off. And was that blood on my jeans? I stood on shaky legs and breathed in deep. The stink of manure wafted in through the open window. I stumbled to it, my eyes adjusting to the darkness and peered outside. I had to be in some old farmhouse. The moon was high overhead, barely a sliver, but I could see chicken coops and cow silhouettes. It felt like I was walking through molasses, but I needed to figure out what was going on. I made it to the bedroom door and threw it open to be greeted by a framed painting of Christ on the wall in a dimly lit hallway. It was a farmhouse all right, and a big one. I shuffled down the hall toward the light and came out into a cluttered kitchen. A gray-haired couple sat at the table, drinking beer and playing cards. Told you he'd be different and get up before dawn. The woman set down her cards. The man snorted, and she turned to me. How are you feeling? I don't know. Take a load off. The man pulled out a third chair, which I collapsed into. You gave us a scare. I did? I'm... I'm having trouble remembering what happened. What's the last thing you do remember? Beer foam, fresh on his mustache. I'm not sure. I leaned back in the chair. Wait, I know. One of my friends moved out to L.A., She said I should come visit, so I started road-tripping her way. Last night, I slept in a motel, and then I ate at this 50s diner for lunch, and... And that's it. I remember driving. It was getting dark, maybe. I can't think of anything else. The woman nodded. I'm Judy, and this is my husband, Henry. You were pounding on our front door. Henry here almost filled you full of birdshot. You look just awful. Said you had car problems, then you collapsed right on the front stoop. Had a nasty gash on your forehead. I did? I blinked madly at her. My eyes itched, my throat was sore, and my stomach growled. Did I get in some accident? Don't know. Judy here got you cleaned up and put you to bed, and I checked the road both ways for a mile or two. Didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Well, I'm grateful for the hospitality. It's the Christian thing to do. Judy flashed a smile. You can rest up tonight, and Henry can drive to the sheriff's office in the morning. They're expecting you. They're expecting me? I called them while you were out. Henry gestured to a boxy rotary phone hanging by the doorway. Reported what I could. They'll get you sorted. Right, right. Thank you. I'm Charlie, by the way. Henry nodded and finished his beer. He crushed it and stood with a protracted sigh. I'm going to lock up for the night. Been a long day. 
He went to the fridge, grabbed another beer, and strode out. Why don't you have a seat in the living room? It's more comfortable. Are you hungry? I could make you a sandwich. As I stood, my stomach let out a mighty rumble, and I blushed. Guess so. (laughs) Relax on the couch and I'll be right in. Ham and cheese, all right? My mouth started watering, and I managed to nod without drooling all over myself. The modest living room housed a sloping couch that I fell onto and a fireplace complete with framed pictures on the mantel. There was Henry and Judy, before the gray, beaming into the camera. And then a family photo with four boys, ranging from a toddler to a middle schooler. There were three graduation pictures of the boys as teenagers in caps and gowns, so I assumed the youngest hadn't graduated yet. He couldn't be much younger than me, judging by the close ages in the first photo. I wondered if he had the same similar rugged good looks as his big brothers, and chided myself for even thinking about guys at a time like this. I'd gotten into trouble, and woken up in the modest house of strangers. I certainly didn't need to be looking to score. Although a little eye candy never hurt the soul. I tried replaying the last few hours, but I couldn't come up with anything more. If Henry had checked the roads, I must have driven into a ditch or something? I had to have hit my head, got a cut, and bled on my jeans? It made sense, but I couldn't place it as actually happening. It was purely conceptual, and for all I knew, aliens abducted me and I lost five weeks. Judy was still puttering in the kitchen, but I heard muffled voices down the hallway. Were any of their sons home as well? I stood and approached the hallway, cocking my head to the side. I could just make out Henry's voice on the other side of the middle door. No. Says his name's Charlie. You don't know him, do you? I don't know, around your age, a little older, I guess? No, I said, you're staying put. I don't need you bothering the poor kid. It's not like that. You caused this, I know you did. You're usually so well-behaved, just like your brothers, but you're such a disappointment lately. All set. I jumped and gave Judy a sheepish grin for being caught eavesdropping. I wasn't... I mean, thank you. I dove back onto the couch and shoveled the sandwich in my mouth. (laughs) You are a hungry boy. Judy smiled warmly and sat in a rocking chair on the other side of the coffee table. Henry's just in there with our youngest, Josiah. He's a good boy. Does as he's told, almost always. As far as I know, at least. I swallowed and eagerly took another mouthful, nodding along. Clearly there was tension between Josiah and his parents, and I really didn't need to add that to my problems, especially in my current state. Henry reappeared and guzzled his beer. He wiped his mouth off on the back of his sleeve and turned to Judy. Your son is being stubborn. Now he wants something to eat, but I think he's just... Forget it. Charlie, you want to wash up and turn in? It's going to be an early morning. I'm sure you want to get sorted out and on with your life. Yes, sure. They watched me finish my sandwich, and Judy wordlessly took my plate into the kitchen. Henry squinted and then opened the first door in the hallway to a small bathroom. I entered and just watched him slowly close the creaking door. I washed my hands and splashed some cool water on my face. I looked up in the mirror and felt a jolt of surprise at the sight of the bandage. It was larger and dirtier than I'd imagined. Carefully, I lifted the bottom portion and discovered a horizontal gash just below my hairline. I lowered the bandage and shook my head. Just my luck I'd get into some stupid accident on a back road and wind up here. 
I couldn't wait to tell Elizabeth all about it when I reached LA. If I reach LA. Two knocks reverberated against the wall. They sounded steady, purposeful. I froze, listening, and then it came again. Knock, knock. I pictured what I could of the house's layout. Unless I was completely turned around, Josiah's room was on the other side of that wall. I thought of a high school junior or senior living in this old farmhouse miles out of town. Poor kid couldn't have it easy, waking up at dawn to finish his chores before the long ride to school. Or maybe I was projecting, not that I had ever lived on a farm. But I did grow up in a small city, and I was dying for a taste of LA. Was Josiah so lonely, all he could manage to connect to someone was knocking on a wall in the middle of the night? I gently knocked back, two identical raps with my knuckles. Nothing for a moment, and then, knock, knock, knock. He was there, right on the other side of that wall. I placed my hand against the smooth, stained surface, and something told me he was doing the same. I heard the door swing open in his room, and I jerked my hand away like I'd accidentally graced a hot stove. Come grab what you want. Then the sound of heavy footsteps leading away. I stepped back from the wall and turned to the toilet, suddenly aware of my full bladder. After relieving myself, I washed my hands, dried them, and then returned to the living room. I could see Henry sitting at the table again with what I assumed was a fresh beer. Judy was walking back and forth, tidying up. There's a bowl of something with a fork sticking out of it, but I couldn't see more of Josiah than a shirt sleeve. I felt a steady gaze tickling my skin and spun, only to find another Christ portrait nailed to the wall beside the mantel, as if he were the seventh member of the family. This can't happen anymore. All these young men coming here. It isn't right. What on earth did she mean by that? Hush up. It can wait till dawn. I left the warmth of the living room and the suspicious gaze of the savior to discover the family tableau in the kitchen. There was Judy performing her housewife duties. There was Henry lording over his castle. There was the son, Josiah, sitting perfectly still in his chair, rigid even. His shiny hair was perfectly sculpted, his complexion flawless. He wore a simple striped shirt and black jeans. But what stopped me in my tracks was the fact that Josiah was a life-size doll. It looked handcrafted. No doubt the farmer had constructed him to be perfect in his eyes. Judy and Henry had placed the thin mannequin in a chair and dressed him and modeled his hair just like their youngest son. Uh... I stalled out. There were no words. What do you tell delusional parents who think an inanimate object is their child? Josiah had been real once, as evidenced by the photo on the mantel. All that remained of their picture-perfect boy was this perfect human doll. Charlie, this is our youngest, Josiah. Now you two met. You happy? He was addressing the doll. I didn't move. Good. Charlie, you'll have to forgive us. We weren't expecting visitors. Josiah's brothers are all out of the house. We're close to empty nesting. Is that right? If he gets his math grade up... Henry turned to his fantasy child. I know, I know, you'll put the work in. I returned my gaze to the life-size Josiah doll. It was so realistic. Only the fixed expression on its handsome face and the rigid positions of its limbs gave away the fact that it wasn't a living person. I paused for a moment at that 
odd thought that the doll was attractive. Although Aladdin had been my childhood crush, Josiah had him beat there. I shook myself from my thoughts as I looked back at the couple. My heart broke for Henry and Judy, and I wondered how Josiah had died. What sort of grief does it take to drive someone to replace the dead with this thing? He wants you to have a seat, but don't feel pressured any. Okay. I sat slowly across from the mannequin, his plastic eyes staring straight through me. I appreciate the hospitality. Probably won't get treated so nice in LA. <laughs> Hardly. That's right. Judy turned to Josiah. Charlie's on his way to Los Angeles. Well, maybe you'll get there one day. He doesn't need to go off to Hollyweird. He'll finish his schooling at the college with his brothers. That's that. You in college, Charlie? I'm taking a gap year to save some money and figure out what I want to do. Henry and Judy shared a quick look, eyes rolling. I felt a pang of disappointment, like I wasn't good enough for them. Was that how Josiah felt all of the time? A car horn blared and Judy and I jumped. Henry just slammed his beer on the table. Not this nonsense again. You said it was all taken care of. I thought it was. He turned to Josiah. This has got to stop. You can't keep dragging boys here like this. The horn sounded again. Who's out there? No one. It's like the house is a magnet. We keep drawing passerbys here. Most of them run out, some of them even left their vehicles. That doesn't make any sense. Tell it to the kid. Henry stood with a jerk. I'll check out the graveyard. <laughs> He's only joking. He means the lot of empty cars out back. Somehow that didn't make me feel any better. Henry left in a huff, and Judy started clinking dishes together. I eyed the Josiah mannequin warily. Guys keep coming here, huh? A few. Well, a dozen, at least. And they all had car accidents? Judy didn't reply as more car horns sounded and Henry shouted outside the house. She glared daggers at Josiah and shook her head. He's going to need help out there. You behave now. I didn't know what to do other than watch Judy jog away. What's it like out there? I spun around, searching for the speaker, but there was only the Josiah mannequin. Had I imagined that timid voice over the noise outside? I rose and walked to the window. I raised the shades and found Henry and Judy going from car to car, turning off the engines. There were close to a dozen vehicles lined up in the sprawling, overgrown backyard. This was all too bizarre. I needed to contact someone sane. I crossed the kitchen and picked up the clunky receiver to the rotary phone, ready to call emergency services. But there was no dial tone. Had it just gone out? I jabbed the cradle a few times to see if that would make a connection, but it remained dead. I stepped back and followed the phone line down the wall and behind a coffee table, where the end dangled uselessly. Henry had told me he used that phone to report my accident to the sheriff's department, but the thing wasn't even plugged in. What else were they lying about? You should run. Heart thumping in my chest, I spun around. There was still no one there, but the danger was real. I did need to get out of there. Were the farmers luring motorists to their isolated home to kill them? Or was there something else to it? Something even worse? My fingers trembled and my feet grew heavy. If I had any chance to survive, I had to make a run for it before the lying couple returned. I didn't know the lay of the land or how far I had to run, but there was no more time to spare. 
Something in the pit of my stomach told me I'd never make it alone. Licking my lips, I eyed Josiah. Perhaps we could help each other. And so I dashed back to the table and carried the life-size doll in my arms. He was lighter than I'd expected, so he didn't weigh me down much as I ran to the front door and snuck out of the house. I was still in my socks, but there was no way I'd waste time searching for my shoes. Only a few car horns were still sounding off by that point. I only had a minute or two until Henry and Judy would return and discover I'd run. My hamstrings burned from bending low and scurrying toward the trees. It only took seconds for the cold dampness to soak my socks and attack my flesh. I reached the edge of the woods, dragging Josiah over the low fence that marked the edge of the clearing. My foot slipped, and I nearly crashed to the ground, but somehow Josiah's legs bent at the last moment and broke my fall, and I managed to right myself. It was so dark within the woods, and Josiah felt heavier with every step. A shotgun blasted far behind me, and I ducked behind a thick tree, panting. They knew I'd left with their son, and they were pissed. There was no going back. I pushed off from the tree and sprinted further away from the house and the angry shouting. I lost all track of time as I progressed, hoping I was at least heading in the right direction. We're going to be alright. Josiah didn't reply. Moonlight appeared just up ahead, and I realized the trees were thinning some. I emerged from out of the woods to the side of a winding road. My car sat on the shoulder. It was a glorious sight to behold. As I hit the dirt at the side of the road, Josiah slipped through my arms and fell in a heap near the wheel of the car. He looked odd, almost broken, and I realized that the unnatural splay of his fingers had become a loosely curled hand. His stiff neck was now arched to the side, and the staring plastic eyes had closed. His eyelashes looked almost too delicate to be plastic. Another shotgun blast tore through the night behind me, closer than the first. Get back here, Josiah! His voice echoed through the still night air. I circled the car, trying each door, but they were all locked. I patted my pockets, but of course I didn't have my keys on me. Josiah! I rubbed my temples, thinking desperately. What could I even do? I could break a window and get inside, sure, but I didn't have the first idea how to hotwire a car. Suddenly, the doors unlocked. I looked up with a start. Josiah stood on the other side of the car, holding the keys and smiling my way. He was even more handsome in real life than any photograph of his role model brothers could ever be. We should get going. He tossed me the keys. My dad's fast for his age. I jumped in and shoved the key in the ignition. Josiah sat in the passenger seat and quickly buckled his seatbelt. The engine roared to life and I pulled out onto the road. Thanks for bringing me with you. Josiah had tears in his all too human eyes. I took his hand in mine and gave it a squeeze and I didn't let go until the sun came up.
whether they endure the nightly attacks of a monster too terrible to name, or suffer the paralyzing effects of rigid expectations, our heroes this episode have the will to triumph over their tormentors. Trapped as you may feel, dear listener, there is always a gasp of air, a sliver of light, and a glimmer of hope. Stay safe out there. Thanks again to J. Danielle Dorn and Troy H. Gardner for their contributions to this episode, and to Lucille Valentine, Ari Ryder, Eric Little, B. and Wart Hill for their performances. Additional music and sounds were by Blue Dot Sessions and Lowell James. Audio production support was by the amazing Ari Maffei. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Big thanks to our patrons and our amazing supporting producers, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, Andy Hunter, and Nicole Penrod. So many folks have stepped up their contributions and spread the good word of Monsters to support us during Nicole's recovery, and as we have started back up, we are so, so grateful to all of them. And, of course, to you, dear listeners, who have a firm grasp on our hearts. Our next episode, Uprising, will be released soon. In the meantime, keep up with the revolution, podcast news, and other scary things, at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. A bittersweet announcement as well. Our production team has made the decision that this will be the last season of Monsters that we produce together. This has been an amazing experience for us. We are so proud of Monsters and so grateful that we have been able to support creators in the LGBTQ community even for this short time. Thanks again to all of you listeners for your support, and we know we can count on you for the rest of this incredible final season. Until next time, Monsters out. Monsters out.